Heavenly Father, we do commit this time to you. Lord, we know that you neither slumber nor sleep. You are aware of all things at all times. That, Lord, you orchestrate not only the ordering of the universe and the, and the galaxy and the solar system, but, Lord, you are the Lord who raises up civilizations. Lord, you appoint the time for men. You know the beginning from the end. And Heavenly Father, I know that every once in a while we need to be reminded that you are the God who is in control. You are the God with the plan. The plan to redeem. The plan to forgive. The plan to reconcile. And so, Heavenly Father, this evening, Lord, I pray that each and every person within the sound of my voice would be prepared to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say. Lord, speak to our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king and the king said to them, I have had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on the earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It's a difficult thing that the king requests. And there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Ariel, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Ariok, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Ariok made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king's interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's companions that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret so that that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. 
And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells upon him or with him. I thank you. Praise you. O God of my fathers, you have given me wisdom and might. And have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captains of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, the, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching. And behold, a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands which struck the image in its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain. The interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. 
The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise of Babylon. And Daniel petitioned the king, and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. This week, someone will die of cancer. This week, someone will lose a child. This week, the whole world, at least for someone, will change. Have you ever felt your world was out of control? Here's what we discovered in the book of Daniel. The world is not out of control. The true and living God occupies eternity and he is in control. An attorney once said, the things that matter the most to us in life are the things that we control the least. Now, this wasn't an an idle philosophical musing. He said it at a time when he was fighting for his life in a battle with cancer. I believe that all of life's experiences culminate. The things that happen to you happen for a reason and a purpose, and it's to drive you into the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to get you to a place where you will love Him and trust Him and depend on Him, and that God will be able to use you to further the plan and the purpose that He has for you. Whether your faith holds up or folds up, will depend on the object of your faith and the foundation of your faith. For one pagan king, he will turn to an army of occult advisors for information. Daniel will trust the God of the Bible. And those two things and that deep division will be your forever choice you will always look to the wisdom of men or you will look to the wisdom of God for the answers to life's most important questions and who will you trust what will you trust I want to ask you a question Do you ever find yourself in a position where you could use a little encouragement that God is in control of world events, that God is in control of personal events? Do you need someone to remind you that God's word is true and that the Bible is true? Do you need someone to share with you the promises of hope? Do you need someone to tell you that God is faithful to his people and that he hears the prayers of his people and that he can be trusted with with your life? Do you need someone to tell you that God can be trusted even when you find yourself in the darkest, bleakest, deepest moment of your life? Last Wednesday, when I was preparing this message and delivering this message, the following day on Thursday, one of my friends, Greg Laurie, his son tragically died in an accident on the 91 freeway. It's every parent's worst nightmare. On Sunday, he told his congregation, I'm not going to lie to you, he said. Last Thursday was the worst day of my life. And he went on to tell the congregation about Christopher's commitment to Christ. He went on to talk about the love that he had for his son, a son's love for his father, and the faithfulness of a God who sent his only begotten son. And Greg told the congregation that he could think of no better place than to be in church, worshiping God, praying to God, praising God with the people of God. He spoke for maybe 10 or 15 minutes and invited people to come to receive Jesus Christ. And hundreds came forward. In Daniel chapter 2, 
God will invade the dreams of a pagan king, and God will do so to reveal himself and to, to reveal the future. One man's nightmare will lead to the death of some and the threat of death to others. And for Daniel and his friends, the threat of death and the deliverance by God will occur because of a supernatural revelation that God will give to Daniel. A sleeping king will dream about the future. And the king will come face to face with a king who never slumbers, who never sleeps. The true king. The eternal king. The king who will build an everlasting kingdom. And we're going to look at the first part of the chapter next week. We're going to peek into humanity's future with a description and then discussion of the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But it begins in verse 1. I call it Sleepless and Babylon. Read it for yourself. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that it left him. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar was made the king September 7th, 605 B.C. That's before Christ. And for those of you who have problems understanding before Christ and A.D. Anno Domini after Christ, let me just give you a simple way to think about it. When you're a kid growing up, when you used to watch the rocket ship go up into space, remember they would have a countdown. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Prior to the coming of Christ, the centuries are dated 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And 10 or 1,000 B.C., that's the time of David and Solomon. 900 is the divided kingdom. 800 and 700 is the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And, and 600 is the time of Daniel. 500 is the time of the Medes and the Persians. 400, it goes into the same time. In the 300s, is the time of the Greeks. And 100, is the time of the Romans. And blast off, Jesus arrives. That's how you remember. He becomes the king upon the death of his father, Nabopolassar. And we're going to learn more about the character and the identity both of Babylon, the king of Babylon, and the culture of Babylon as we continue our study in the book of Daniel. Now, in this first verse, the king is having a dream. And in the first, third verse, he has a dream. Note, in the first, it's plural. And in the third verse, it's singular. This means that the king is having a reoccurring dream. Have you ever had a reoccurring dream? Have you ever had one of those dreams that day after day or night after night, perhaps when you were a child, perhaps even later in life, you had a dream and you dreamt it over and over again, one that confused you or upset you or annoyed you? When I was a little boy, I'm thinking maybe prior to the first grade, I used to have a dream that I would walk into a room and there would be a big coffee table and on the coffee table there would be a big book and I knew that it was the Bible. And in my dream, monsters would come after me. I would throw the book at them and they would disappear. And then I would have another dream and in my dream... There would be the book on the table and there would be a long corridor and down the long corridor there would be doors on either side of the corridor that seemed to stretch forever. And for whatever reason, I never looked in any of the doors. I always went to the end of the corridor. I always turned to the left and I always opened the door and there was always a monster there getting ready to hit me with a big club. You can imagine that gives nightmares to a little kid. The story is told of a reoccurring dream that a former president used to have. It's not that president. It's a different president. It's Abraham Lincoln. As a matter of fact, on the morning of April 14th, Abraham Lincoln gathered his advisors in cabinet to discuss the plans for the reconstruction of the United States following the devastation of the Civil War. And during the hours of mourning, they were working, and Abraham Lincoln told them about his reoccurring dream. And in his dream, it was a crucial time during the war, and he saw himself on board a singular, indescribable ocean vessel. He is on the vessel, and the vessel is headed for an indefinite shore, and Lincoln and the cabinet talked about the dream that morning, but nobody understood what it meant. That night, Lincoln went to Ford's theater, and he was shot in the back of the head by John Wilkes Booth. Before the day ended, Lincoln was dead. John Phillips writes, and I quote, the vessel was his own life. 
the dream he had was a warning of what was about to take place. He was about to embark on the shores of eternity, and little did he imagine that the dream had personal meaning for him and a very important meaning for the nation. And the same is true of this king who lays his head on a bed and the God of heaven begins to unfold to him the future of all of humanity. There will be an immediate application of Babylon, then the Medes and the Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans. And then the Roman Empire will be divided into two, and there will be a gigantic split in time and space. And remember what I've already all told you, and that is that all of history and all of humanity and all of the dealings that God has is in relationship to the coming of a Savior. And look at verse 2, the sovereign demand. It says, Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So they came and they stood before the king. It would not have been unusual for all of these men to come and stand before the king because they served in both a religious capacity and a political capacity. As a matter of fact, the word magicians is the translation of a Hebrew word which has its root meaning in a stylus or a pen. It was a word that could be used to describe a person who is a recorder. In other words, in that particular culture and society, it had more to do with a scholar, if you will, than a person who practiced the supernatural or magic. Astrologers is also translated enchanters. And this particular group of people referred to what was known as necromancy. It was the art, if you will, of calling up the dead and talking to the dead. So you can imagine in this culture and society, they're looking for supernatural information about the past and the present and the future. The translation suggests the study of the stars, if you will, in order to predict the future. Sorcery indicates those who practice divination or what the ancients called incantation. Incantation is just simply a word that was used to describe people who claimed that they could create reality with their words. We have a similar manifestation in our own culture and society. The people who say they can name it and claim it, or that they can speak things into existence. This is just simply another perversion of an ancient practice. The most significant term is the term Chaldeans. This was a special group. It was an academy, if you will, of scientists and astronomers. This academy of scientists and and astronomers would also describe the people group that lived in what was known as Southern Babylonia. If you can imagine in your mind, if you can see Iran and Iraq and then the Gulf um, in modern times, the Tigris and the Euphrates run parallel. When you go to the southern part of Babylon all the way to the coast, that was the region known as the region of the Chaldeans. And this was a group of people who had a reputation of being able to provide privileged information to heads of state. And so here is the combined wisdom of Babylon, a ragtag team of mystics and counselors and advisors. And some Bible teachers have have pointed out that for whatever reason, Daniel and his friends are not at this meeting. Is it possible that Daniel and his friends are not at this meeting because they've just joined the ranks of the wise? Are they still teenagers? Have they finished their studies? We're not told. But in verse 3 it says, And the king said to them, I've had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Now remember, in the first verse, King Nebuchadnezzar is troubled. And now in the third verse, he is anxious. Apparently, this reoccurring dream was such that it agitated him to the point where he began to dread going to bed at night. And by the way, if you've ever suffered from sleep deprivation, it will bring on all the symptoms of psychosis. And so over and over and over again, he has this dream. Does he know the dream? 
I'm going to suggest to you that he really does. Has he forgotten the dream? I'm going to suggest to you that he has not forgotten the dream. Otherwise, why is it so upsetting? He understands that something supernatural and impressive is beginning to take place in his life. And so again, look at verse 4. It says, the Chaldean spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give you the interpretation. By the way, from Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, beginning where we are right now, all the way through chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, all the way to the end to verse 28, is written in the language of Aramaic. And again, scholars have puzzled over why the written text is in Aramaic at this point. And I'm going to make a suggestion to you. The reason why it's written in Aramaic at this point is because Aramaic is the language of the nations and of the Gentiles. This is the language of culture, government, and trade. Because it is the language of culture, government, and trade for the Gentile language or for the Gentile nations, God's now addressing Gentile peoples and Gentile nations. And by the way, when you get to chapter eight, the text will revert revert back to the Hebrew language. And the reason why I believe that it reverts back to the Hebrew language is because now the prophecies and the visions are going to begin to focus on the land of Israel and the people of Israel. And so, the most plausible explanation, I think, is that exactly, that it's a primary audience is to the Gentile nations and how the Gentile world is going to unfold. And so the customary greeting to the king is, live forever. Tell your servants the dream. We'll give the interpretation. No big deal. We have Tole. We have Oprah. We have the combined people of... Um, we, have, we have the person who talks to the dead. We have the ghost whisperer. Hey, between us, we're bound to come up with an interpretation that will work. And in verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, I'm going to cut you in pieces and your houses shall be made a trash heap. By the way, here's one thing that we're going to begin to learn about Nebuchadnezzar right from the start. When he says he's going to do something, guess what happens? It it happens. He does it. As a matter of fact, a careful reading of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you'll discover that when King Nebuchadnezzar captured King Zedekiah, he slaughtered his children before his very eyes, and then he took a hot iron, and he poked out King Zedekiah's eyes and blinded him and brought him into chains into the Babylonian court. And during the time of the rebellion, he took three Jewish resistors and he burned them alive. And so when he says he's going to do something, guess what? He is actually going to do it. I've sort of made up my mind. If you not only don't tell me the content of the dream and its interpretation, here's what I'm going to do. You're going to be torn apart by wild horses. The pieces that are left are going to be taken and cut into tinier pieces. And then we're going to take all of your personal property, all of your wives, all of your children, and we're going to burn it to the ground. Does that sound a little harsh to you? Let me tell you something. That's exactly the way it is in the world. They can turn on you in a moment. You all heard the expression, power corrupts. How does the rest of it go? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. You've heard of the golden rule? He who has the gold rules. And Babylon is the kingdom of gold. The king knows that anyone can fabricate a so-called interpretation to any dream. The king will put the wise men to the ultimate test to reveal both the content of the dream and its meaning. And if you don't, you're going to die. Verse 6, however, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give its interpretation. What is, what's a worldly wise counselor to do? 
stall for time. Did we hear you correctly? Do you remember the scene from The Princess Bride? Where the guy goes, You bested my giant, which means you must have great strength, but you also defeated my Spaniard, which means you must have studied. And in studying, you discovered that life is mortal, and therefore you shoved the cup away from you as far as possible. And remember, the other guy says, Truly, your intellect is dizzying. Remember, it's exactly what's happening. He's stalling for time. And they're stalling for time. In verse 8, the king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time. Because you see that my decision is firm. The king is basically making it known. You will give me exactly what I want or you will die. And in verse 9, it says, if you do not make known the dream to me, there's only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. You understand what's happening? The king trusts no one. That's what mental and emotional distress will do. That's what sleepless nights will do. That's when you stay up and you're wondering about your own future. It will mean that the people that, who are closest to you, your closest advisors, you won't trust them. King Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to suggest to you, doesn't even trust himself. And he does the most wicked and sinister thing of all. He demands the impossible from those who are closest to him. Has anyone ever demanded something that was impossible? From you. I want you to do the dishes, but I'm not going to give you any water and I'm not going to give you any soap. I want you to pay the bills, but I'm not going to make any money for you to pay the bills. Look at verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such thing from any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. Verse 11. It's a difficult thing that the king requests. And there's no other who can tell it to the king except the gods. The, the word here is the same word that that we would understand to be like Elohim, whose dwelling is not with the flesh. Here's what the king's counselors respond with. Look, look, king, oh king, you're asking us a question that only God can answer. And here's what they're basically saying. Oh king, we are human beings. We're not really gods. You know, it's an interesting thing when you put a person in a position of authority and responsibility and they act like gods and they talk like gods. But when you ask them to have godlike understanding of a typical situation, they go, hey, look, we can't help you. You know, if this tells us anything at all, it tells us that people who search for answers in the world of the occult are bound to be disappointed. There was a time in my life before I became a Christian, that I did serious search into the world of, of the occult. I, I couldn't read enough about psychics and mystics and mediums and astrologers. I myself would begin to read palms and tarot cards and those who speak with the dead. I went into a little journey myself because I was convinced that there was a supernatural world and there was supernatural powers out there. But you know what? Here's what we know. Those who claim those powers can stir up a little curiosity. And they can stir up a little fear. But I've never met a single psychic. I've never met a single medium who in some way didn't misrepresent God. Or distort the Bible. Or distort the Bible's teachings. Many years ago I was on a television program with Lee Strobel. And it was my duty to debate with the medium or the occultist, this woman who talked with the dead. And she said, oh, yes, you know, I've got this gift of speaking with the dead. I've, you know, she had that sort of accent of being touched by an angel. Yes, I can speak with the dead. God has given me this gift of being able to speak with the dead. I said, Leah, well, could you ask her a question? 
how is it that the Bible prohibits the speaking of the dead? Why would God give her a gift of speaking to the dead, yet insist that the children of Israel never under any circumstances conduct mediums and seances or conduct conversations with the dead? And she says, well, you know, it all depends on what Bible translation you use. I said, I have 36 translations of the Old Testament, two in the Hebrew text. None of the translations make the prohibition an affirmation. And then she said, well, you can't believe everything in the Bible. And then I said, well, which parts are false? And you know what the answer is. It's the parts that she disagrees with. And then I asked her an important question. I said, has a spirit ever lied to you? And you could hear the wheels turning, even though there's silence in the background. Well, if I say yes, then he'll say, why believe any of them? And if I say no, it's a complete fraud and a lie. What, what do I do here? And she said, the spirits have never lied to me. And you could tell everyone in the television audience knew that she was lying. Chuck Swindoll writes, They cannot discern the depths of his counsel. They cannot communicate his heart. They cannot reveal his program. Sovereignty and sorcery are as far apart as heaven and hell. And you know what? The same is true of each and every one of you and everyone in your family. There are dark moments and there are painful moments and there are difficult moments and you yourself or someone that you know in that dark moment is going to look for information from a supernatural source. Some people wonder if God even exists. A.W. Tozer made the remark, what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. And yet our culture is filled with subtle and not so subtle suggestions that God is unreachable, unapproachable, inaccessible. We're flooded with New Age lies, assumptions about God that aren't based on biblical revelation. We're told lie after lie, and then the lies are repeated. God is whatever you want him to be. There are many paths leading to God. God is now more tolerant than he's ever been before in any time in the past. God has never personally suffered. God is obligated to save followers from other religions. God takes no responsibility for natural disasters. God doesn't know our decisions before we make them. That's called the open view, and it is a lie. The fall ruined God's plan. We have to choose between God's pleasure and our own pleasure. And the biggest lie of all, God helps those who help themselves. You know why that's a lie? Because the Bible says exactly the opposite. God helps the helpless, the hopeless, the person who has no other option. And look at verse 12. It says, for this reason, the king was angry and very furious. And he gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. By the way, the expression wise men does not appear in the original text. You'll notice in your Bible, the word men is italicized. It's, it's a word that is a descriptor, if you will, of the sum and the substance of all of those people who claim human knowledge quite apart from the revelation of God. And remember, the king's hostility is really directed not towards these wise men, but towards the very real and living God. And by the way, that's true in most of our lives and most of our families' lives. When people are angry with you, when they're mad at you, when they're so upset with you because you're constantly opening your Bible, you're constantly pointing to chapter and verse, you're constantly quoting the Scripture, and you're driving your family and your friends nuts. It isn't because they hate you. It's they hate the God behind the words that you're speaking. The 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche wrote, If thou is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? He actually threw a little philosophical temper tantrum. Most of us don't have the temerity to actually say it. 
Well, if there really is a God, why can't I be Him? Because we understand the absurdity of such a remark. Sinclair Ferguson writes, What haunted him about his dream was that, and as we shall see, God was saying in it, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom may be great, but it will fade away and decay. Only the kingdom I build will stand and last forever. It will break in pieces and consume all of those other kingdoms, and it will stand forever. Nebuchadnezzar's dilemma is the the conflict that all people, every people, face in every generation. He was not prepared for God to be God. He was not prepared for God to show himself in history. He was unwilling for God to be God. He was unwilling for God to be the Lord of his life. And by the way, that's true of each and every one of us who may secretly pray, Thy will be done. But deep inside of our heart and our lives, we stamp our feet and we raise our hand and we insist on having our own way. And so the decree went out. And look what it says, and make no mistake about it, the decree went out and they began killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Guess what? The king's dream has become every person's nightmare. The net result is going to be their death. Now here's a question for you. How does Daniel remain so calm in the midst of crisis? How does Daniel remain so calm, again like the princess bride, when death is on the line? You know, again, it's my great privilege to work with law enforcement officers. And you know why law enforcement officers can remain calm in the most adverse and difficult circumstances? It's because they're trained. They're trained. They're trained to position themselves between the innocent and the evil. Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, is there to kill Daniel. He is there to kill his companions. Now, I want you just for a moment to pause, and I want you to ask yourself this question. If Ariok all of a sudden showed up in your life and he is there to put you to death, what do you do? What do you do when the person shows up with a death warrant for you, do you panic? Do you run? Do you shift the executioner's attention elsewhere? Again, Bible teacher Sinclair Ferguson points out Nebuchadnezzar's response gives us insight into the nature of all human beings who live their lives apart from the true and the living God. Remember, Daniel is going to respond to the king's insecurity and hostility. Think about what's happening. The powerful king of Babylon has everything that money, power, privilege, birth, fame, military might can provide. King Nebuchadnezzar is building an empire. The king is embarking on a construction project. The hanging gardens of Babylon will be one of the seven wonders of the world. Why is this dream causing such trouble and such anxiety? Why is it with this man who has everything that when he goes to bed at night, he dreams, but he's still a child with nightmares and terrors? It's because Nebuchadnezzar, like so many of us, his dreams, his goals, his ambitions, his his legacy are simply man-made mirages. They're images in the desert. He lives for this world. His horizons may extend to a couple of generations. His ambitions are to provide for his children and his grandchildren. But beyond that, even his kingdom will one day collapse and one The world will change and everything he lived for and everything that he dies for will become nothing more than a mound of trash. But we were meant to live for so much more. We were meant to live 
and experience friendship and relationship with God and Christ. Augustine's oft-repeated statement is still true. The human heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. How does Daniel survive when he's facing death? And remember how he does survive. It's because his confidence is in the real, true, living God. There's a God who occupies eternity. There's a God who knows the beginning from the end. There's a God who is true and faithful. And by the way, in the end, God doesn't divide the world into haves and the have-nots. Unless, of course, it's those who have Christ and those who don't have Christ. Those who have a right relationship because they have experienced real joy and real peace and real forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, everything that's in the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for the world, don't satisfy. King Nebuchadnezzar will secure a kingdom. He will have power. He will have possessions. But guess what he won't have? He won't have peace. And you can have everything, can't you? But there's this disturbing, fundamental reoccurring dream when nobody else is watching and nobody else is looking and when you lay your head on the pillow and you realize that your life might be one big fantasy and so the next is hostility As we see the portrait of the king emerge, it's a portrait of humanity, insecure, hostile to God. And that's the key. Nebuchadnezzar is at war with the world and he's at war with his counselors. You want to know why? Because he doesn't have peace in his heart. And if you've ever wondered why you have the fundamental problems that you do in your home, in your family, in your work, in your nation is because there's a fundamental divide. There's a war. Nebuchadnezzar is at war with the world. And guess what? He is arguably the most powerful human being on the planet Earth. And what he's trying to do is bend everything towards his will. By the way, does it bother you? Do Are you a little bit resentful that one human being can have that much power over another human being? Have you ever had that experience in your life? Where someone took complete control of your life much against your wishes? It's happened a couple of times in my life. You know when it was most pronounced? There's been a couple of times in my life where a person's taken a gun and they've stuck it in my chest and they threatened to pull the trigger. You know what goes through a person's mind when that happens? I'll tell you what went through my mind. It was, my wife is going to be so angry. She's invested a lot in me. And for you to just kill me for no good reason, you're going to face one angry Hispanic lady. This is one of the great wonders of marrying a Latina. Here, hold my baby. We're going to fight. I feel sorry for the person who takes my life. Daniel has the courage to probe the circumstances, but he also has the confidence in God to offer an alternative. That's exactly what happens. Look at verse 14. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. This is the person who's showing up to kill them. Verse 15, he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. He didn't have to, but he did. Do you know why he does? Because Daniel has favor with God and with man. And it's very clear that for whatever reason, the captain of the king's guard doesn't kill him. But he explains the dilemma. And as he explains the dilemma, he apparently takes Daniel before the king. And then look in verse 16, it says, So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. And the captain of the guard appears before the king with the man that he was supposed to kill. Now now think about how dangerous that is. I thought I sent you to kill this guy. 
O king, live forever. He says he can make all your dreams come true. (laughs) Remember what you asked for. You needed someone who would tell you both the content and the intent of the dream. And then in verse 17 it says, Then Daniel went to his house and he made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Remember them from chapter 1? And in verse 18 it says that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. Here's what Daniel needed. He needed time to pray because even Daniel in all of his wisdom didn't know the dream and couldn't interpret the dream without the almighty and everlasting God. And this becomes an important issue for each and every one of us. Daniel needed time to hear from God and to seek the Lord. And it would seem that men have already died. And Daniel and his friends are next. Here's the question. Is the situation hopeless? It sure looks that way. But guess what? Their hopeless situation becomes the opportunity that God is looking for to show himself strong for those who will trust him. And sometimes that's exactly what you need to trust him. In that dark moment, in that bleak moment, and each and every one of you, like my friend Greg Laurie, I hope it's not today and I hope it's not tomorrow. But each and every one of you will have one of those days that are the darkest day of your life. And your faith will stand. Guess when it begins. When you're at the end of your own abilities, when you're at the end of your own resources, when you're at the end of your own answers, and the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. Uh, Lord, pretty much need to hear from you. Uh, because, ooh, in a few minutes, I'm going to die. And by the way, the Lord will often put us in situations where only He is sufficient. And Daniel knew that. So Daniel prays with his friends and they wait upon the Lord. I'm going to ask you probably the most simple, and it might even seem superficial, question in the whole text for tonight. Why did God answer Daniel's prayer? It's a pretty simple question, isn't it? Why did God answer Daniel's prayer. What do you think the answer is? I think that there's lots of answers. I think one of the answers is, is God the kind of God who answers prayers? God is the kind of God who answers prayers. Daniel is available. Daniel is willing to pray. Daniel is willing to risk and ask. And you might be thinking, what risk? He's being threatened that he's going to be chopped into pieces and everything that he understands and knows is going to be... You know, it's not much of a risk when a person's standing there with a gun and says, unless you can... You know, they stick crackers in your mouth and say, okay, now repeat the ABCs. Have you ever eaten, like, salt crackers and people go and try to whistle? It's just not possible. You have to spit out the crackers. Or you have to do something else. Daniel asked, and I'm going to suggest to you, the reason why God answered Daniel's prayer is because he asked. And he made himself available. And he asked in humility. And God spoke. And Daniel gave God all the credit. And Daniel was faithful. And Daniel was humble. And Daniel was obedient. And God is sovereign. And Daniel has already made the decision not to devile himself and compromise with Babylon. And so God wants to use him. We sometimes feel that our prayers go unanswered. C.S. Lewis asked some hard questions when his wife Joy died from a lingering illness. 
he wrote, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him. If you turn to him, then with praise, you will welcome with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of, of a bolting and a double bolting on the other side. After that, silence. You might as well turn away. Unquote. Does God always answer prayer? He, he always does, by the way. The answer is always yes or no or wait. It may not be the answer that you want, but it is an answer. What do you do when God answers your prayers? Daniel's friends, praise him. What do you do when God answers your prayers, but he doesn't answer them the way that you want them answered? You praise him. Look at verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what's in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You've given me wisdom and might. You've made known to me what you ask. For you have made known to us the king's demand. Notice what he doesn't do. He, when the Lord gives him the answer, he doesn't go, I've got the answer. I've got the answer. I've got the answer. We're saved. We're not all going to die. Think about it. When you get the answer, the first thing you do is you're out the door to save your bacon. Even if you're keeping kosher, sometimes you have to save your bacon. You give God praise. It's simple enough to say that he gave God praise. But I want to just give you a couple of reasons. But the same is true for me and the same is true for you. That when God answers your prayers, praise him. The four reasons that Daniel gives God deserves all praise because he has all wisdom and power and it belongs to him. God knows everything. He knows all things well. He knows what to do in every circumstance. He is powerful. He can do anything to accomplish His purposes on the earth. He can and will deliver His people from crisis of life. And it might be deliverance in life. It might be a deliverance in death. But it's still going to be a deliverance. And God deserves all praise, number two, because He controls all events. Look at verse 21. And He changes the times and... And the seasons, he removes kings and raises up kings. It's God. He's in control of human history. It's not the Democrats. It's not the Republicans. God is in control of all of human history, including our history. God alone raises up rulers. He deposes rulers. And although the rulers may think that they've obtained the power and they did it on their own effort based on their own charisma and their own ability and their own genius and their own oratorical skills, they're deceived. God places people in authority. He gives them the right to rule and to lead. And number three, God deserves praise because he gives, look, wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. That's what it says in the original language. He alone gives deep and mysterious understanding to those things that are in darkness. He alone dwells in perfect light. It is the Lord who reveals both the dream and the interpretation to Daniel. And note how Daniel is claiming that ultimate truth can only be found in the Lord. It can only be found in the revelation of God. It can only be found in the word of God. And then God deserves praise because he's given Daniel superhuman wisdom and power in verse 23. And do you realize that every once in a while, under extraordinary circumstances, 
God will give you wisdom and power that is not your own. And the words that you speak didn't come from you. It came from a true and living God who has placed the words in your mouth. And you'll note something else. Daniel takes time, significant time, to praise God and worship God and express his love and admiration and appreciation to God. He expresses love and admiration to his insurpassable wisdom and knowledge and understanding and mercy and grace. And he does all of these things before the king removes the decree for execution. God's the true God. He's not just some tribal deity. Daniel knew the wisdom of God was just as strong in Babylon as it was in Jerusalem. God's power isn't just in the past, and it isn't just in the story, and it isn't just in the Bible. God's power is here, and it is present. By the way, where was the safest place in the world to be if you were Daniel and his friends. It doesn't sound like Babylon's a safe place, huh? Especially if you have a king who has a nightmare and in the midst of the nightmare he decides that he's going to kill everybody. That doesn't seem to be a safe place to be. But remember, remember, remember. Do you remember David? Do you remember the prayer of David in Psalm 23? Most of you know it by heart. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He prepares a table for me in the midst of my enemies. You know where the safest place to be is? The safest place to be is smack dab in the middle of God's will even if you're surrounded by enemies. God chose to answer Daniel's prayer. And he praised him. Daniel knew that even the most powerful ruler on the earth had to yield to God. And King Nebuchadnezzar was on, on the throne because God had allowed it. Part of the point is, God placed him there, and God can remove him. Do you remember the words that Jesus spoke to Pilate? Do you remember when Pilate threatened him? He says, don't you understand who I am? And don't you understand what I can do? Don't you understand that I can execute you or release you? And do you remember Jesus' words? You would have no power at all unless it was given to you by someone else. And the Bible says something very remarkable at that point. He says, from that moment on, Pilate sought to release him. The next time someone threatens you and says, don't you understand that I have power over your marriage and I have power over your friendship and I have power over your future and I have power over your finances. I can determine whether you keep your house or whether you lose your house. I can determine whether your wife leaves you or stays with you. I can determine if this is going to happen or that's going to happen. The right response is to pray and praise knowing that all foolish human beings who think that your life is in their hand are completely deceived because your life lies clearly, squarely, specifically in the hands of an eternal God who orders not just the universe or the galaxy or civilizations, but every moment of every day of your life. And he's pushing you closer and closer and closer to his ultimate plans and his ultimate purposes. You know what? Nebuchadnezzar must have known, he must have known that the ambitions of his heart were not really secret. They weren't really hidden from God. 
and that the true and the living God could reveal the truth, not only about his heart, but every heart, not just about his future, but every future. But that's for next week. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Lord, it's a resentful, horrible thing to to be in a position where someone has that much control and that much power and that seeming authority in our life. But Lord, we know that in the end, no one can do anything unless you've given them the ability to do it. And Lord, you told us not to fear human beings who could destroy the body, but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul and hell. Lord, we know that that's you. You told us not to be afraid. You told us that we could trust you. Lord, you told us that not only do you know everything, that that you're wise and loving. And Lord, we want a faith that will hold us up and that won't fold up under pressure. And so, Lord, we pray that we would trust Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. The true and living Messiah that all of history was pushing towards. And Lord, I pray for that person. I pray for that person who needs to surrender their life to you. Who might have a reoccurring dream and and a reoccurring nightmare that something is horribly and terribly and permanently wrong with them. Lord, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would reveal to them that that can be all done away with in the person of Jesus Christ, that they can experience hope and forgiveness and eternal life. And that the darkness will go away and the light will come and that the guilt will go away and forgiveness will come and that the horror will go away and hope will come. Lord, I pray that they would seek you, that they would cry out to you, that they would confess their sin and receive you as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.